If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. When I was, years ago, was on staff at Denton Bible Church, and even as a college student in North Texas, attended Denton Bible Church, Pastor Tom Nelson, huge influence in my life. I like to say back in those days, the greatest preacher in the world. I only heard him on one occasion talk about his mechanics, if you will, of how he put together a sermon, what, what he kind of thought about as he was studying a passive passage of Scripture and getting ready to preach it. And there were four big ideas. Number one was focus. As he studied the passage of Scripture, he wanted to look for what's the focus of this passage. Um, if you've ever taken a preaching course or maybe even a public speaking course, this is the, the big idea. What's the one big idea? What's the focus of this particular passage of Scripture that is meant to be brought home to God's people. Focus. Secondly was flow. If indeed that is the focus of this passage, then what's the flow of the Scripture to bring it to light? And what will be the flow of my sermon as I work through the passage of Scripture seeking to bring it to light? Third was flower. To flower the sermon with illustrations. How can I make it easier for my audience to understand? So focus, what's the big idea? Flow, how does the scripture move along to bring this focus to light? Flower, what are the illustrations that will make it easier to understand? And then finally, number four was friction. Every passage of Scripture, every big idea that God wants us to believe or that He's calling us to live into runs against the grain of our natural inclination. It runs against the grain of what the world would have us believe or do. It runs against the grain of our ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. The world, the flesh, the devil runs against whatever it is that God is calling us to believe and God is calling us to do. So what's the friction to bring to bear in the sermon? I think that's what's going on, at least in the passage that's before us this morning. There's always a friction between God's way and the wrong way. The wrong way I'm summing up in the world, the flesh, and the devil. God's way and the wrong way. There's, there's always a friction. There's always the temptation to go with that other voice speaking into our ear. In Acts chapter 13, verse 4. Frank, is Benji back there? I can't see him. Is he? Yep. There it is. Oh, good. He's right on track. Um, I should have been doing this all along. Forgive me for not, but just a quick 
Delio on the book of Acts. Remember, Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead there in Jerusalem, ascended into heaven, sent his spirit, and the early church began to proclaim Jesus in Jerusalem. That was in Acts chapter 1, 1 to 247, and then 3, 1 to 6, 7 as well. The gospel birthed in Jerusalem and then expanded within Jerusalem. And then in 6, 8 down to 9, 31, the gospel went into Judea and into Samaria and even a little further north into Galilee. 9.32 to 12.24, the gospel spread all the way up to Antioch. And then we saw last week, that's where we saw this church that was ministering to the Lord in verse 2 and fasting and praying. I think essentially asking, what's next, Lord? Where do you want us to go now, Lord? We've got some thoughts, but we're praying, we're seeking you. If you were here last week, I just encouraged all of us, when we're convinced that Jesus wants us to live on mission, but we're not exactly sure how, seek the Lord for his missional direction. Worship him. Fast. Pray. God, how do you want this to play out in my life? And you see in verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This next section in the book, 1225, all the way to 165, is the extension of the church into Asia Minor. The beginning of this trip from Antioch is going to come first to the island of Cyprus. That's what we're going to see this morning. And then as we continue on, it'll move up into Pisidia, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. The gospel will come to Asia Minor. We're going further and further. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. So we're dealing with that island of Cyprus today. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, now Salamis is on the eastern part of the island of Cyprus here, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. We saw that last week over in chapter 12, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. So on this first missionary journey is Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. They began in the synagogues of the Jews. You remember that that would be Paul's general strategy. Whenever he would come into a city, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. And here he begins in the synagogues in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, Paphos is over here on the western side, and so they started at Salamis and made their way through the island over to Paphos. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, or Son of Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. 
This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. The ways of God come to us through his word. That's the way it will come to Sergius Paulus. He's going to request to hear from, from Barnabas and Paul in the end of verse 7. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul, the Apostle Paul, and sought to hear the word of God. Apparently, as these missionaries had come to town, word got out around Paphos that they were there and that they were sharing an interesting, maybe even powerful message. And Sergius Paulus, this, this Roman proconsul, this government official, a man of intelligence, Luke tells us, wanted to hear. And so he asked for Paul and Barnabas to come, and of course they obliged. This man summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God, and you see it down at the end of verse 8. What they were sharing with him was the faith. In the New American Standard, it says that this Bar-Jesus his other name was Elimus, was opposing Paul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The faith is a, is a little word. It's used throughout the New Testament, and it refers to the body of Christian truth that was passed down from Christ and the apostles to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Maybe the most famous passage about it is in the it's in the book of Jude, where it says that we are contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the New Testament scholars will tell us it's at least made up of three big ideas, this faith. Number one, it's made up of the words and the works of Jesus. Even at this time, when the New Testament had not yet been written and come together, those words of Jesus Christ and his works, the miracles of Jesus Christ, had been collected into some documents and certainly passed on orally, such that that became part and parcel of what was proclaimed. The teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and the significance of both of those. That was part of the faith that Barnabas and Paul would have shared with this man. Another part of it would have been the large, grand story of redemption. Not just the words of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, but we believe that they would have set this into the larger picture of God's purposes in the world. The creation, the fall, redemption through God sending His Son Jesus Christ into the world to live and die and rise again. And that by believing in him, one could have the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God and the hope of eternal life. Creation, fall, redemption, and then the consummation of all things when Jesus would come again. And so you can imagine, Sergius Paulus says to Paul and Barnabas, I want to hear what y'all are up to. And they would have told him about Jesus, what he taught, what he did. And they would have told him the grand story of the salvation that has come into the world through Jesus Christ. 
And then finally, probably the faith consisted of the ethical teaching for the Christian life. That whenever someone comes to put their faith in Jesus Christ, the very Holy Spirit of God comes into them and begins to give them new desires and new power to live a new kind of life. So that's the faith. And it comes to us as well. Just as it came to Sergius Paulus through Barnabas and Paul, through the preached Word of God, so it comes to every one of Christ's followers today through the pages of Scripture as we read, through the teaching and the preaching of God's Word as we put ourselves under it. The ways of God are here. Who He is what he's done and is doing. Who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished for his people. How you and I are to live as followers of Christ. Where history is going in the end. Here is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It comes to us just as it did to Sergius Paulus through the word of God But the ways of God that come to us through the Word, these ways of God are also contradicted in the world. Verse 8. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Sir, just Paulus, a man of intelligence. Guys, I want to hear. Tell me about it. And as Barnabas and as Paul are sharing with him the faith, here is Bar-Jesus, Elimus, opposing them and seeking to turn the proconsul away. There are forces at work that never want people to hear and understand, believe, and obey the Word of God. There are forces at work that oppose forces at work that would turn people away from the faith. When it comes to the things that we are meant to believe, there's always another voice, isn't there? Where do we come from? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's always another voice, isn't there? That there is no God. That the universe is not the result of his creative power. That we are not created by God. 
in his image. There's always a different voice. When it comes to the sovereignty of God, so clearly taught in the pages of Scripture, there's always another voice that says he's not sovereign. He's not absolutely in control. He can't be trusted. When it comes to sin, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to all of the great truths that the Scriptures so clearly teach, it, it seems that at every turn, there's another voice calling us away from it, opposing it, seeking to turn us away. When it comes to what the Bible not merely calls us to believe, but when it comes to the ethical teaching of the Scriptures, what the Bible calls us to, how the Bible calls us to behave, there's always another voice, isn't there? There's always that inclination from our flesh, always the alluring world, always the busy devil who would oppose what Scripture is calling us to, who would seek to turn us away. The Spirit of God calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To put Him at the center of our life, the priority of our life, to seek Him. And yet there's always another voice that seeks to bring Him out of the primary place of our life and to put ourselves or some other idol in His place. The Spirit of God, through His Word, calls us to be a people of love, and yet there's always a different voice calling us away from love to pride, to haughtiness, to racism, to anger, to revenge, to apathy. There's always opposition to God's calls. When the Spirit calls us to fight sin, whether if it's an explosive temper or an uncontrollable tongue or an impure mind or an unloving attitude towards one's wife or disrespectful attitude towards one's husband, whatever it might be, the Scripture, the Spirit of God through the Word of God calling us to holiness, calling us to fight our sin, and yet there's always that other voice saying sin's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. Nobody's perfect. God understands. It's not that bad. So make peace with it. Keep it happy. Don't do anything too drastic. The Spirit of God, through the Word of God, calls us to commitment to each other in our local church to love one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and jump in with one another, to serve one another, to lock arms together in a family of faith. And yet there's always another voice. There's always the inclination that would oppose that. Say, don't get too close, you might get burned. Don't jump in too much. There's other things more important. 
The Spirit of God, through the Word of God, calls us to a simpler kind of life that allows for sacrificial generosity to the church family and to world missions around the world. There's always a voice saying, no, it's yours. You earned it. It's yours. And there's always the word from our sponsor that's calling us to spend and borrow and acquire and consume and discard and spend and borrow and acquire and consume and discard. There's always that other voice opposing God's ways, seeking to turn God's people away from His ways. And the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is calling us to a great commission lifestyle. It says, I'm here for the glory of God, for the good of His church, and for reaching the lost with the gospel. There's always another voice. It says, leave them alone. They don't really need the gospel. All is okay. The Word of God comes to us, but the Word of God is so often opposed. There's the voice of the Spirit of God through the Word of God, and then there's the other voice that opposes what God's Word says. It seeks to turn us away from what God's Word says. Verse 9, But indeed, it is the ways of God found in the Word of God that are credible. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, this false prophet, and said, You are full of all deceit and fraud. This fellow was a magician. My daughters and my wife will tell you lately, I have been fascinated by that Penn and Teller show called Fool Us, where magicians come on, TV, come on in front of Penn and Teller and they try and do their magic trick and they get to see whether or not they can fool Penn or Teller. And I watch them and I'm fascinated by them and then I go try and find the, the reveal videos on YouTube so I can figure out how did that guy do what he just did? I'm not, a, I'm not a magician, I promise you, but it, it's kind of fascinating. Some of you know who David Blaine is. Love watching that guy on TV. Creeps me out. Listen, you can imagine, those guys are good. And they fool people all the time. Particularly, if you might think of some who are more naive. Apparently, this guy was good. He could do tricks in front of you. He could do magic stuff in front of you that would just flip you out. In particular, if you were more naive or more gullible. And he could manipulate you and he could get you to believe what he wanted you to believe. He could get you to do what he wanted you to do. Probably give you, him some money. Probably the idea around that word fraud. You're full of all deceit. Fraud. He's a con artist. 
you son of the devil. Good night, Paul. He's probably, though, playing off of his name, Bar-Jesus. Son of salvation. Son of Jesus was this man's name. And Paul is saying, no, you're not. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? God's ways that come to us through God's Word are the straight ways of the Lord. But there's always the temptation. There's always that other voice. There's always that opposition that tries to take the straight ways of the Lord and make them crooked to lead us astray. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Can you remember a fellow in the book of Acts who just a few chapters earlier was struck with blindness? It was, the, it was Saul on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and he was met by Jesus and struck with blindness for a time. And here, too, is this man. It's interesting, God's mercy, that it's for a time. We don't know what came of this man, but hopefully something similar to what came of Paul. That in the midst of his darkness, he would have a chance to think to pray, to ponder. I think we're meant to read verses 9, 10, and 11 with the sense of the supremacy of God's ways over the other ways. Here you have Paul preaching the faith, the words and works of Jesus, the story of redemption in his name, the ethical teaching, what it means and looks like to follow him. And here you have Bar-Jesus, Elimus, opposing and saying, no, Sergius Paulus, he doesn't speak the truth. No, don't believe that. Believe this. Which one is the one to go with? Which one is supreme? I think 9, 10, and 11 are there to show us that God's ways are always supreme. That He is the God of truth. He's the one to be trusted. That when the other voice is yapping and opposing and seeking to turn away and to take the straight ways of the Lord and make them crooked, we're meant to remember that here, here is the Word of God. Here is truth. This is what I'm to believe. This is how I'm to live. 
Here is where forgiveness is found. In Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Close with a couple things. You may be here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're like Sergius Paulus. Maybe you've heard a little bit about Jesus here and there. And you want to hear more. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe you don't even know why you're here. What's the old deal? Yeah, I had a drug problem when I, got, when I was growing up. My mama drugged me to church every Sunday morning. Maybe you got drugged here this morning by a friend or by a spouse, maybe by a parent. And you've heard of the faith. But there's also these voices that are saying to you, it's not true, don't believe it. This passage of Scripture, I think, is meant to encourage you to ponder. Indeed, the Word of God is supreme. Indeed, the Word of God is true. And if you would, I would encourage you to go back to the Scriptures again. If you're an unbeliever, and you're tempted to shove this book aside, but I say to you, go back to it again. This is the greatest story that's ever been told. This is the most amazing news the world has ever heard. It is the only essential message for any man, woman, or child the world over that God in His great love has sent His Son Jesus Christ into the world for sinners like you and me. And that by turning in faith to Him, you can be forgiven of your sins and reconciled back to God and made part of His family forever with the hope of eternal life. Name another more essential message than that one. It is, in my estimation, the most unique of the religions of the world. If indeed you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're here, you're in a church, maybe that means that you're inclined towards God in some way. That you're looking to connect with Him in some way. But I just encourage you and remind you that, that Christianity is so absolutely unique because as best I know it's the only message of grace in the whole wide world every other religion in the world is going to tell you you must do in order to be right with God you're not right with God now you must do some things in order to get right with him, and you've got to cross your fingers 
hoping you've done enough. Christianity and Christianity alone, unless you can help me understand better, is the only one, the only one that says done for you. All of these say do. Christianity says done for you. You are a sinner. You need forgiveness. You need someone to die in your place and for your sins. And you need someone to live a holy life that you couldn't live. Take the the account of their righteousness and impute it to you as if you lived it. Guess what? That's what Jesus Christ does. He dies in your place for your sins. The punishment meant for you falls upon him on the cross 2,000 years ago. And you need a righteousness that you don't have in and of yourself. Guess what? He lived it for you. And his righteousness is, fancy theological word, it's imputed to your account. It's as if you lived it. Such that when you put your faith in Jesus, because of his life, his righteous life, it gets charged to your account. And because of his death, the wrath of God is poured out on him and not on you. Christianity does not say do. It says it's already been done. That's why if you pressed me and said, Mitch, you've got to sum up the Bible in one word, I wouldn't say Jesus, though that'd be a good answer. One word, grace. Grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards sinners who only deserve his wrath. That's all of us. But here is Christianity. It says God acts in grace towards sinners like you and me. You will not find it anywhere else. It's the most essential, the only essential message. It's the most unique of all the religions of the world. In my estimation, it's the most authoritative in answering life's greatest questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? How do we determine right and wrong? Where are we going when it's all said and done? This book, God's truth, God's ways, answers those questions with such authority. Where do we come from? We come from God. Why are we here? To glorify Him. How do we determine right and wrong? God does. Where are we going when it's all said and done? Those who are united to His Son, Jesus Christ, will will live and reign in a new heavens and a new earth forevermore. And those who have refused will be separated from Him forevermore. If you're not a believer, go back. Go back. Go back. Yes, you will scratch your head many a times, but I think, or I'm, I'm encouraging you, go back to the ways of God to hear them again. And consider 
if they are not true. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is just another reminder. to Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. It's always an issue of belief. Will I believe God's ways are true and best? Or will I listen to the other voice? Whether it's coming from the inclination of my own sinfulness or the allurements of the world or our arch enemy working through both, will I believe that God's ways are best? Or will I give in to the to that which is trying to turn me away, to believe something different, to live something different. It's an issue of trust. It's an issue of faith. It's an issue of believing that God's ways are best. So maybe to sum it up, when someone or something or some inclination in our own fallen flesh says, this way, By God's grace, let's go God's way. Let's go God's way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for my brothers and sisters as I pray for myself. Would you help us in the fight of faith to believe to trust your word, your ways. To be sober-minded, on the alert, knowing that there is always those who would make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. And oh, how tempted we can be to believe those crooked ways. Help us. Help us in those moments. There are always moments. To trust you, to believe your word. And Lord, for my friends here today that might not be followers of Jesus, might you draw them again to, to consider again the faith of God and his love in his son, Jesus Christ, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, in the Holy Spirit who's given Might they reconsider. Might you draw them to understand and believe the faith. And to begin a journey of walking with Jesus in the power of his spirit forevermore. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And for his glory, amen.